Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. You should check out his documentary series, Catch and Kill, the podcast tapes. It's currently streaming on HBO Max. It's very strong work. His work has been strong for a long time, even though he's only 33 years old, which is amazing to me. He essentially, and I don't know if he wants to be taking credit for this, but his reporting on Harvey Weinstein helped ignite the Me Too movement. So I am thrilled to ask a bunch of questions of Ronan Farrow because the journalism he's been doing is exceptional and exceptionally hard for a while now. So Ronan, let me begin with when did you doubt the most that this story would ever see the light of day on Harvey Weinstein? I mean, I remember there was a period that I describe in the the book, Catch and Kill, uh, which is more sort of my story reporting the story, the the podcast tapes, which, you know, just wrapped on HBO and is now streaming as of today on HBO Max, is more of the sources stories. It's deep dives into the sometimes, you know, really quite epic sagas that are totally separate that these sources lived through. And, and in that respect, I was grateful to be able to shift the focus. But to, to your question about my own doubts, that sort of lives in the story that's separately told in the book. And um, although it's touched on a, a little bit here and there in the TV series, uh, and I think in both, one thing that comes across is, you know, when you get fired for your job, uh, you, when you hear from a bunch of executives at a, a news network, and, and not just executives, but friends who you've worked with for some time, uh, you when you hear from them that this is never going to be a story and that people fundamentally, you know, will not care about this. Um, and, you know, not just that you don't have enough evidence to run the story, uh, but that, you know, it's just not that big a deal, um, which was, you know, Noah Oppenheim, the, the president of NBC News's contention. Uh, you can get to a point where you question what you fundamentally know with every fiber of your being, which is, you know, you've got a, a recording of a guy admitting to a sexual assault uh, that the police had suppressed. You've, um, you know, I should, and I should clarify that the judicial and legal system had suppressed because actually the cops wanted very much for that tape to get out. Um, you know, we had multiple women on the record. Um, all of this is detailed in the, in the HBO documentary. And I think understandably in retrospect, it looks pretty bad that people weren't racing to, to get that uh, out publicly. But when you're inside that and your career's on the line and it's all a cost-benefit analysis and, uh, again, you have all of these voices in your ear, the executives I mentioned, but also people like, you know, my agent, um, you know, people in the industry, uh, a lot of the sources, understandably, from a place of trauma, also saying, you know, this is just not a story that's ever going to see the light of day. Uh, the odds are too great. Um, absolutely, there, there were times where I had no idea what the outcome was going to be and, and found myself thinking, like, what, what do I do? I remember uh, uh, my partner, uh, John Lovett, who's also shows up in this book, um, 
saying to me recently, do you remember when we were talking about, like, do you put it up as a medium post? Like, what, what is going to happen to this reporting? Because uh, he was he was actually one of the rare people, to his immense credit, who never wavered even once, you know, said from the very, very first piece of evidence I got, you know, you've just got to put everything on the line. It's an incredibly important story. How many people like that were there? <sighs> very, very few. You know, I think there were people within the group of sources who kept me going uh, because they were holding strong and never wavered in their understanding of how important it was. Um, you know, there were other sources, as I mentioned, who I think were dealing with so much personal trauma um, that it was much more a process, which I, I document in, in both the, the book and the podcast and, and this show, uh, of trying desperately to convince them to stick with it. Uh, but there were other sources, uh, people like Emily Nestor, who was one of the first to go on the record in, in this particular body of reporting, um, who really were kind of unwavering. They never withdrew. Um, uh, and then there was there was John, my partner, who I mentioned. And I'm actually, I'm thinking uh, for the first time, because I haven't been posed this question before, I honestly don't think there's anyone else who leaps to mind. There's my producer. There's an episode of the HBO show, which I'm, I'm really proud of, and I'm, I'm glad is out there in the public, about my producer at NBC, Rich McHugh. Um, and he is someone who actually also never wavered. You know, we, we were going through the same cost-benefit analysis together, and uh, he talks about in the show having kids to support and, you know, family on the line and nevertheless, you know, really feeling this was worth putting his job on the line for. And I drew a lot of strength for that. And I think the outcome might have been quite different if he hadn't stuck by me because I was very much being, uh, to use a slightly overused term right now, gaslit, but I think it's the truest definition of that, you know, to have a group of people descend on you and say, no, your judgment is totally not correct. <laughs> you know, this is not news. Uh, this will never be news. Uh, and he was having none of that. You know, he was a, a more experienced professional in network news than I was. And um, from the very beginning said, you know, this is fishy. They're shutting down this story. I've been at other networks. This is not how it's supposed to work. Um, and encouraged me to keep going even when he couldn't because he was, you know, there under contract at that network and they killed the thing. I've heard you interviewed enough to know that, you know, the journalist isn't supposed to be the story and the victims here are the brave ones. Maybe you don't look at yourself as the same kind of brave. And maybe you say, I'm not a victim here. But while I'm watching Catch and Kill, what I felt on your behalf, I can't believe how scared this dude had to be. Just scared when NBC comes down on you, career on the line, and now the money and the lawyers are pelting you with all manner of threats. Like, of course, your confidence is going to get shaken. How could it not? Yeah, it, it did get shaken, and it was a, a hard period mental health-wise. And, uh, you know, you're, you're right to clock a, a challenge here, which is um, I really have worked very hard to keep the, the focus on the sources, uh, not from any nobility so much as just, you know, my posture for a very long time in this story was banging my head against the wall trying to get people to pay attention to their stories. Um, and I, I didn't want to distract from that. Uh, and that was the case for several years. But I, I did come to realize over time that what you're saying is true uh, and that it connects to a separate wider issue of importance, which is 
journalists do get threatened all the time in the United States, beyond the United States, sometimes with much higher stakes outside of countries where there are legal protections uh, for the free press. And it felt important to me over time as I lived with the fact that you're alluding to of how scary this was uh, to tell that story in a sober way that, you know, wasn't overly dramatic or overblown or anything, but um, that got at just what investigative journalists confront when they go up against powerful interests. Uh, And I, as I am alluding to with that reference to countries around the world where journalists face a lot more uh, direct violence, uh, had it much, much more fortunate than many. But uh, it is a problem and it's definitely not fun uh, you know, getting chased around and uh, smear efforts and having to move out of your place because it's no longer a, a safe place. And uh, I'm really grateful for the sources who allowed me to tell that story, you know, being able to document that um, and prove and ultimately prove with documents that, you know, held up in court and stuff. This all figured in the criminal prosecution of, of Weinstein. Um to be able to prove that that you're being uh, chased and surveilled in that way uh, makes a big difference. And that's only possible because there were uh, conscientious whistleblowers within that operation. And, and one of the final episodes of the HBO show is a very strange thing, which is me sitting down for a conversation and a drink with uh, you know a guy who staked me out and followed me around, Igor Ostrovsky. Um, and you know, I talk about in, in the book and in the show uh, just how odd it was to have someone come out of the woodwork and broker a secret meeting and say, "Hey, you know, here are all the pictures from when I was when I was following you around." That's crazy, and I want to get into the specifics of that in a bit. And I do want to touch on all of these stories because I do have a lot of questions about what the women suffered here. That seems remarkably unfair. But when you started this entire process. And you're trying to do a casting couch story on just the understood Hollywood thing of the way you get parts for sexual favors. You imagined the highest point of that story was what? Well, as initially conceived, it was part of my usual beat at the Today Show. And this, again, gets more into my story, which is a little separate from the show. Um, You know, these two things are designed to be complementary. You can read the book. And you can watch the show and, and there's some overlap, they connect, but um, it's almost like, you know, you get to spend more time with characters that lived only more briefly in, in the plot of the book where there's a lot of different things going on. And in the show, you get to, you know, spend an hour uh, with people who uh, showed incredible bravery and understand a little more how that emerged from their backstories. Um but in the in the book, I do get a little bit more into my own backstory, which is I was at something of a low point when I started reporting on this. Um, you get a little bit of this in the Rich McHugh profile on the show, too, Rich being the, the producer I mentioned, because when he first was paired with me, I had had a, you know, a daily cable news show that was uh, canceled. Um, I was doing investigative reporting tape segments for different NBC shows. Um And, you know, I was guest hosting the Today Show and uh, figuring out what I wanted to do in a a career where I had, you know, both been given incredible opportunities and also, you know, I think was viewed a little bit as a laughingstock and a failure um, just because I had had a low rated cable show. 
uh, although it was, you know, critically well received in the very end when, frankly, we started doing more of this investigative reporting and breaking news reporting that was substantive um, and less about headline reading, uh, which is not what people want in the middle of the day, but was what I came to care about. And so I kind of, you know, I was I was tackling both an existential challenge at that point of what do I do uh, and not feeling particularly uh, uh, empowered in where I was career wise, um, though, again, I acknowledge how fortunate I was in so many ways. Um, and I was also coming, on the other hand, to believe sincerely in that deeper investigative reporting. Uh, but the the upper limit to your question of of what that amounted to was, you know, well regarded, occasionally uh, awards recognized, you know, shorter tape segments for for network news, and I would, uh, you know, in addition to sort of doing hosting duties and stuff here and there, I, I would uh, come on the Today Show and say, hey, Matt Lauer, here's a five minute segment, let's roll tape, a couple of questions out of it. Uh, and that was what this was supposed to be. We did a, a series on Hollywood that I had pitched and uh, it was a, an ongoing negotiation right up to the end, how dark we could get with that. Uh, and, and network news, particularly morning television, is understandably not the most natural fit for the very, very dark topics. Um, to their credit, they ran pieces in that series on, you know, gender diversity in Hollywood, uh, where I talked to women directors about the problems with the lack of women directors in Hollywood. Um, there, there were a handful of pieces that, you know, got at substantive issues, but this piece about the casting couch rapidly became something of an albatross because it was darker, uh, because increasingly it became a piece about Harvey Weinstein. Um, and because, with each piece of evidence that we gathered, the, the network became more and more uncomfortable with it, which is all now sort of old history, although it's been striking uh, having Rich, this producer, lay it all out in such a kind of frank way on the show that there's been this resurgence of reaction to it. Uh, but but all I thought at the outset was, you know, we'll, we'll air this on the Today Show around Oscar season, um, and it'll be one of several in this series and that's it. But, but I do, I do think the moment the Harvey evidence started to come into play, it became apparent that it was going to be bigger than that. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX is The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. The documentary HBO Max now is where it's streaming. It is riveting catch and kill the podcast tapes and it is a slice of the work 
that Ronan does. How important was the taped conversation of Weinstein? Can any of this happen if you do not have that taped conversation, or does it all die? All of your reporting for a year, all of the reporting killed by NBC, none of it would see the light of day without that taped conversation. It's really hard to say, Dan. It's um, it's hugely important. There's no doubt about that. Uh, hearing him entrap someone is chilling and you know for a lot of people very triggering uh it's hard tape to hear uh we owe that to amber gutierrez uh this incredible woman who uh went to extraordinary lengths and had to show such ingenuity first to participate in a a frankly terrifying police sting operation uh, where she had to go back to a guy who had you know, behaved in a way that really traumatized her and try to entrap him uh, then the very next day. And, and there were plainclothes officers sort of hidden around the scene. But then as we lay out in the show and you get to actually hear sort of in real time through this tape, she gets separated from them and she's alone with him. And it's very, very scary. And you can hear how scared she is. Um, and you can hear how out of line and kind of increasingly unhinged he's getting, but she did extract a confession. And uh, that's an incredible thing in any criminal case. It's an incredible thing in any body of investigative reporting. Uh, and I do think that combination of him confessing uh, essentially to serial groping at, the, at a very minimum, because uh, he says, you know, uh, I'm used to that is this you know, chilling phrase in this context. Uh, and then and then also the, the quality of just being able to experience what some of these women went through. I do think that changed the, the dialogue around the case. I think it made it harder for the first time for uh, prosecutors not to go after him more aggressively. And you know, there have been so many instances of the legal system dropping the ball and Harvey Weinstein evading accountability. Um, I think as with so many things, it's a critical mass of factors. You know, the, the New York Times did incredible reporting on the harassment side of things. Um, not just me, but a whole team at the New Yorker, you know, brought together this reporting about the, the rape allegations. Um, there was a cultural moment unspooling uh, that was related to all that reporting, but also separate in some ways, where I think a lot of women were standing up and saying enough. Uh, and I think all of that came together in a moment where there had to be more accountability in this case, sadly, than, than there is in, in so many cases to this day. Uh, but I do think while we can only speculate what the universe would be like without that tape, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Amber Gutierrez uh, um, because there's that whole caper of getting that tape. And then there's a whole other saga of her life falling apart and yet her fighting to preserve the evidence. So I was happy we were able to to do an episode where we really dive deep on that. The taped conversation does reach you. It is chilling, as you said, and it is a visceral reaction you have to it. One of the things, I mean, it's there are many in it, uh, the the aggression, the the insistence, and the the word he kept using, the friendship, when they're not actually friends, it felt so manipulative 
to save friendship when uh, the undercurrent on that is you want to maintain your friendship with me. It's how you get the things that you want from the power. They weren't friends in any way. And I, there's just no way to listen to that and not feel uncomfortable. All of it. Yeah, it's very, very dark uh, and it feels very practiced. And you know, his side of that conversation is very sinister. I think that you know, the, for the series in particular where you're seeing and hearing things and it's much more visceral in some ways, you know, I did a lot of thinking about uh, what is the right balance of including frank accounts of the details because there is power uh, in that kind of honesty um, and, you know, not putting people through the ringer more than they have to be or bludgeoning people with the darkness of this Um you know, uh, the the show actually, uh, while it has some dark and I, I think for some potentially triggering moments, errs on the side of focusing on sources and their bravery rather than on Weinstein. So even in that tape, you know, the way we frame it, and I think one of the things that I personally emerged from listening to that tape with is just with an emphasis on the incredible ingenuity of Amber Gutierrez, because you go into that tape, I think, expecting to some extent when you just see on paper what's happening, this very, very young model uh, who he's just groped. Uh, you know, she, unbeknownst to him, collaborating with the police, agrees to a follow-up drink. Um, she doesn't speak English well at all. She speaks English much better now, um, but this was now some years ago. Um, and so she's speaking sort of haltingly, and, and you go into this conversation as a listener thinking, oh, well, he's playing her. He has this routine, and he thinks he can just steamroll her with it. Um, but what emerges as you listen and understand the full context and, and hear my conversation with her along the way is she really is playing him. And it's this very uh, strangely empowering moment, too, of someone who, you know, took risks. It was scary, but was just insanely brave and did prevail. You know, she does corner him into a confession. Um, and she is in those early moments where he thinks he's kind of doing his usual, I guess he would call it a seduction routine. Uh, she's actually running circles around him. You know, she's kind of, she's playing a part. Um, she's leaning into those things that he wants and uh, she's doing it all very knowingly. So. You know, I, I think things for the series in particular were included um, not just ever for their darkness or their shock value, but because they have that element of let's spend some time with a person who we can kind of we can learn a little from, frankly, uh, because they are that brave and their story is that empowering and inspiring despite the darkness. I was heartbroken for his assistant, Ruana Chiu. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I hope I am. Uh, she was talking about... Harvey Weinstein not being the only monster in the room when she was discussing with her lawyers and the other lawyers the non-disclosure agreement. How do we arrive in a place where the lawyers on both sides are trying to get towards settlement? I assumed that's just because it's so hard to prosecute these cases and what you run up against, which is this story's never going to get published, Ronan, this is never going to happen, that basically the lawyers are saying, this is the best you're going to do. I just couldn't believe that the lawyers on her side were arguing on behalf of, yeah, the money will just make this go away. And it made it made me feel like they were just interested in getting their cut as opposed to actually helping her. Yeah. And, you know, I, part of investigative reporting is 
talking to every person on every side of a situation and understanding all the nuances. And I, I did have contact with that legal team when I first reported um, her and, and Zelda Perkins's stories. Uh, you know, these are the, the two assistants in England who um, took action against Weinstein. And it's it's a fascinating episode of the show where you, you start to see again, in keeping with the theme I just mentioned, people kind of rising up and, and starting to fracture the system he had built. Um, and I think Zelda and Rowena deserve a lot of credit for doing that. Um, you know, the the lawyers on the other side of that equation, the people representing them, uh, would argue, as you might expect, that they you know briefed them on all the available options, and it wasn't that they were railroading them in any way. Um, I, I think that the truth is very much in line with what Rowena is saying, and and it's not necessarily down to an individual case of bad lawyering or any kind of technical breach of the duties of care a lawyer has to their client. Um, I think it's a wider problem. You know, I say this as an attorney myself, it's an unimaginative profession at times when it comes to this kind of contract law. And the safest, easiest path is to get your client to pay out, take a cut of that payout, and then put the thing to bed. And you actually get in, in the industry, um, you know, beyond this individual legal team that we're talking about, a whole lot of lawyers who are repeat players with that business model. You know, Gloria Allred is someone who um, I've talked to on the record, who has been sort of quoted in, in pieces I've done about non-disclosure agreements, uh, who really defends that practice. And that's her business model, right? Like she has to present to her client the option of signing a non-disclosure agreement and getting a payout. And she makes no bones about the fact that she uh, not only presents that option, but you know embraces it as the right outcome in a lot of situations. I adopt a slightly different view. You know, I, th- I think a system in which the default option is silence um, and in which that option has a tremendous center of gravity, right? Because there is a payout associated with that you wind up with a on a public policy level uh a real health problem essentially for for lack of a better phrase because you get repeat offenders um you know this this is literally a public safety issue um and these kinds of legal structures allow for repeat offense in a chilling number of cases many of which have now been made public not just through me but through, through the work of a whole bunch of reporters And then the second thing that I've seen happen with these non-disclosure agreements and lawyers pushing clients towards them is you wind up with clients who are really unhappy. You know, a lot of the sources in these stories who signed non-disclosure agreements um, found that it took a tremendous psychological tool. It's part of the Amber Gutierrez episode in this show that, you know, she takes a million dollar payout and really grapples with the emotional weight of that. And she only did it after the cops, you know, had had dropped the case and she had really tried for all of the non-payout options um, and, and was kind of cornered. You know, she makes a persuasive case of that. I entirely understand why someone might take that money. Um, but it is telling that, you know, she struggled with how to live with that and worried about other women getting hurt. Uh, and ultimately breached that non-disclosure agreement um, and, you know, got the the tape out, which is an incredibly brave thing to do. Um, you know, that is really, really gutsy and, and terrifying for anyone to stare down. Um, 
And I am very, very happy to say that, you know, she's thrived in the wake of that. But what Zelda and Rowena experienced was, you know, sadly, um, a, a chilling reflection of how these legal structures protect abusers, because that happened in the 90s. And, you know, Ambra's case happens in, I believe, 2015. Uh, and in all those years between, uh, Zelda and Rowena both talked about, you know, worrying about the fact that they tried their best to change things, but ultimately did take a payout in exchange for silence, um, worrying about how that might have, uh, you know, allowed others to, to get hurt. And I, I don't think that responsibility is at all on them. Um, but I respect immensely the the degree of moral reflection they both showed and and the fact that they both ultimately agreed to talk about this. You know, Zelda helped with the initial reporting and um, Rowena is incredibly eloquent and powerful talking about the burdens of silence and the reasons why she didn't initially speak. You know, she talks about hiding in her bathroom when, when I was initially calling and, um, you know, not knowing what to do. And... It's very gratifying all this time later to, to see her telling her story in different forums. I'm really grateful for it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You're basically exposing the business of being a rapist the way that Harvey Weinstein was doing it, which is just do what you want and then have the lawyers come in and throw money on it and you can get the non-disclosure agreement and then you get the silence and you can keep doing it. So what are the consequences of these women breaking or violating those non-disclosure agreements? Well, it depends on the specifics of the contract. Uh, you know, I... I never cavalierly tell my sources they're not going to face any legal risks if they breach a non-disclosure agreement. Of course, they can theoretically be enforced. That said, I think one of the lessons of this moment where there's been a lot of good reporting from a lot of people on non-disclosure agreements that were technically supposed to be confidential, um, I think one of the lessons of that moment is... Uh, there are limits to the enforceability of these agreements. And, you know, it depends on some specifics. Is there a private arbitration clause in this agreement where they can kind of haul you into mediation? Um, or does it require, uh, you know, an actual courtroom process where there's going to be a, a, a discovery phase and people are going to open themselves up to all sorts of exposure of more things if they enforce these contracts? Um, but by and large, I do think you know, once the cat is out of the bag with these kinds of disclosures, the utility of enforcement declines steeply. Uh, and with most configurations of contracts, uh, there are serious downsides to enforcement. Um, not for all NDAs in general. I think like your run-of-the-mill work non-disclosure agreement, all of us have likely signed some version of this can be fine. You know, if you sign a legitimate contract to protect trade secrets that the company you're working on, 
um, you know, that's fine. And enforcing that can look fine. Uh, but, you know, what I've found through this reporting across dozens and dozens of sources breaking non-disclosure agreements is if you have been using a non-disclosure agreement to cover up a crime uh, or attempts to cover up a crime, enforcing it can look really, really bad and lead to the exposure of a whole lot more details. Uh, and, you know, arbitration or not, uh, there's always the potential for the enforcement process leaking. Um, so that's kind of a, a nerdy and technical and slightly meandering answer to your question. But, you know, I, I think that uh, as much as those sources are taking risks, they are calculated risks. And it is telling that, uh, you know, across these stories, sources breaking big NDAs, including Amber Gutierrez, have not been hauled into court. The agreements have not been enforced. Um, and I think that they're doing so has been celebrated correctly because they're exposing wrongdoing and it's really in the public interest. Uh, so, so thankfully, after a lot of tough conversations with a lot of sources, uh, you know, my experience by and large has been that they're, they feel good about the fact that they took that risk. I was grateful, Ronan, that you covered the journalism. As someone who cares about journalism, that you showed the audience in Catch and Kill, the podcast tapes, just how meticulous and how thorough the vetting has to be for every word of what it is you're writing and how careful it has to be. At a time when journalism is you know, diluted in a number of different ways, I was grateful that you guys were showing just how meticulous this has to be in order to get published. It's one of the parts of this that I am most grateful to have been able to get out. It, it's an incredible thing to witness the New Yorker's fact-checking process. And it's the only way I was able to withstand all of the threats coming at me. And I wish that uh, that rigor of fact-checking were more commonplace in journalism, because I think it is the best antidote to the kind of skepticism about the media that's out there and the accusations of fake news, um, you know, which are infuriating because, of course, journalism is a constitutionally protected profession for a reason and the cornerstone of democracy. You have to have access to facts to have an informed uh, body politic. And it, it, there's a reason why it's such a routine historical occurrence that fascists and uh, you know, leaders who are sort of against the rule of law and want to consolidate power go hard on journalists um, and try to weaponize rhetoric that sort of conveys to the public that journalists are enemies. So it feels like an important moment, actually, to talk about and demystify what journalists actually do, and particularly the corner of journalism that uh, these stories exist in, which is one that's attended with a whole lot of care and caution. And, you know, we're not perfect, but I, I can tell you that there is a sincere and at times backbreaking effort to really get the facts right and convey them in all of their complication. Um, and that's, uh, that's another tribute to the sources in these stories, because particularly for this kind of very traumatizing uh, set of facts, I'm requiring sources to not just disclose those facts, but really relive them in the context of a very intense and sometimes adversarial grilling. And, you know, I'm grateful for all the sources who have come forward and said, you know, that that was a healing process for them, that that was a good thing for them. But 
Uh, make no mistake about it. You know, I'm, I'm in some ways in an adversarial posture in that process. I, I share, I think, the source's um, commitment to getting the truth out and the belief that that's important and that they're doing something brave. Uh, but the best way for me to serve them is actually to, you know, pick apart their story and identify any inconsistencies and make sure the reader knows about that. Uh, you know, you're, you're subjecting yourself to scrutiny of your credibility when you come forward with these kinds of serious criminal allegations. And that's, um, that's a scary, hard thing. And, uh, you know, again, it underscores for me just how brave the, the characters in this series, the women who helped to out the truth in this case, um, and, and some men too, you have people like that, that spy who, uh, had a change of heart, um, who helped to kind of expose and dismantle a system. Um, but it really reminds me of, of their bravery and all of that works hand in hand with the system that you're talking about, where there is a team of editors and fact checkers that are scrubbing and re-scrubbing and standing up to legal threats, partly, uh, because, they can really say, you know, we, we did our due diligence. We really, really left no stone unturned and we really gave a fair airing of all of the different sides of this. It really is remarkable work. Documentary series Catch and Kill, the podcast tapes. You should watch it on HBO. Last question, we'll get you out of here. Among You mentioned a spy. Among the places where you personally felt threatened, NBC not supporting you, letting you go, uh, we've chronicled some of the things buried in lawyers threatening you. God knows what kind of ruin they were threatening you with. And then, uh, you know, black ops following you around, uh, private uh, detectives. Where did you feel most threatened? I mean, I think it's that it's that sort of interregnum where the story just didn't have a home um, and my career didn't have a home. And uh there was a, you know, I, I try to make the story not about me, um, but in the context I told you about before of finally understanding that there was some utility, I think, for others in telling my story, I, I have now acknowledged that those two things came together. Um, you know, the personal interests uh, and fears about my own future and safety, and then, you know, the concerns and sincere caring about the fate of the story and what was going to happen to potentially other women who might get hurt if I didn't get those facts out. So all of that kind of converged in a very complicated way for me. Um, and it, I think I just hit a point, honestly, where there was no way out but through. And a lot of journalists, I'm sure, have had that feeling on, on tough stories um, where you're getting a lot of incoming on it. Uh, at a certain point, you know, when, when you've sort of when you've given up the the job and the career path you thought you were going to have, and uh, you can't really be in your home at that point in time, uh, and you don't know whether the work is going to see the light of day, I, yeah, suffice it to say that's that's a hard moment. That was probably the the tough spot for me. But you know, you you made this point earlier, Dan, and it's one I make a lot, but I make it a lot because it's a sincere belief I have. I was buoyed by the fact that I was dealing with incredibly brave sources. Um, I was, aside from anything else, embarrassed to let them down. It was very embarrassing to, you know, get them on the record, have that long process, put them on camera, and then say, hey, so I'm working on getting this out. I promise. I can't tell you where now, but I'm, I'm working on it. Stay with me. Stay with me. Um, 
And, you know, more seriously than embarrassment, the contrast was always apparent to me where they were reliving something really tough. Some of them, it became increasingly apparent, were also dealing with espionage and intimidation and legal threats. And, you know, I, I couldn't wallow too much in my own situation, which was, uh, I think, you know, a smaller spike on the Richter scale of pain and trauma, relatively speaking. Grateful for your time, grateful for your work, grateful for your empathy, grateful in general for what it is that you're doing on behalf of journalism. Thank you for spending this time with us, Ronan. Dan, I so appreciate it. It's always uh, such a respectful and interesting and thoughtful conversation. And a lot of the press I do around a project like this is very, very bite-sized. So uh, it's nice to have a conversation uh, with such evident caring and with some breathing room in it. I have a thousand more questions, but I don't want to take up more of your time. (laughs) I'll come back for you sometime. I'm impressed you put up with me twice in a row in as many weeks. Uh, Thank you, sir. Grateful for all you do. Thank you. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.